What does it take to make workshops work? And how can we facilitate collaboration that sticks and leads to results? My name is Miriam Hapness, and with the Workshops Work podcast, I'm on the mission to find the magic ingredients that make workshops work. Today with me on the show is Steph Clark, and we speak about L&D, how to facilitate learning and development in organizations, and how to make these learning trainings stick. So stay tuned. And by the way, if you don't have pen and paper at hand to take your own notes, scroll down to the show notes to download my free one-page summary. And now, lean back and be inspired. Hello, Steph. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me on a Friday morning. What a nice way to start the end of the week. What a nice way to put it, to start the end of the week. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. I am um, looking forward to speaking about learning and development, how to facilitate it, and the role of workshops and all of that. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, same. It's um, I've been I've been facilitating this week in preparation for this conversation. Yay! <laughs> Taking this so seriously. <laughs> Very serious. I wasn't going to do any, and then I thought, well, I'm, I've got this interview. I should probably do some facilitation this week. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Wonderful. So, since we are already speaking about facilitation, I always kick off with the same question: When did you start calling yourself a facilitator? And actually, do you? I do sometimes. And I think when, particularly when you're, I was talking to someone else about this the other day, particularly when you're running your own business, it sort of depends who I'm talking to as to whether I want them to know I'm a facilitator or not. And whether I want them to know me purely as a facilitator or whether I want to, them to know me as someone who does learning design and therefore, and I also do facilitation. It's just one of the things I can add on to and in, in, into the work. Yeah. So I think when I started calling myself a facilitator, well, I guess in 2009, when I started doing some facilitation, I kind of had to call myself a facilitator because that's how we introduced ourselves at the beginning of session. So I was working for the, just to take you in a, a time travel, I was working in the UK still at that point. I was new to facilitation and I was seconding into the learning team. For, so I worked for EY for Ernst Young, as it was at the time. And I was facilitating the junior audit training. And so we had to call ourselves facilitators because that's what we were in, in the room for that four or five days that we were training people. So yeah, so I did, whether I felt like I was a true facilitator, I, I don't know, maybe mm -hmm. not, but, um, but yeah, so it's a, it's a title I use, but sometimes I use it with a small F. So facilitation is something I do rather yeah. than a capital F where I am a facilitator. Totally. And so you started in L&D in learning and development before you did facilitation, if I understand it correctly? Sort of. I, my starting point in learning and development was facilitation. So I actually started my my first role, I suppose, in learning and development was as a trainer, as a, as a facilitator. And then I moved into learning and development to do more of the kind of course design, curriculum design, and some of the other bits and pieces as well. Ooh, and I've This brings up two questions. I noticed that we have time. <laughs> yes. I noticed that you might use facilitator and trainer interchangeably. And I wonder whether this was intentionally or whether you see a difference. And then I would be very curious to learn from you what you learn from your time facilitating these trainings for your work mm. now in designing the trainings. Yeah. Yeah. 
So your first question, I use it interchangeably very intentionally because I was talking that about that specific time. So 2009, that, around that kind of time when I was starting and I was definitely would have considered them more similar at that point. So mm-hmm. I would, I would use them quite interchangeably at that time, probably because we, we just, that's, we use them interchangeably at EY. That was just what we, you know, we would call people facilitators or trainers. It didn't really matter. I definitely think now in my, grand old age now, you know, many years later, <laughs> that facilitation is part of being a good trainer. But I think training, I don't know, I think there is a distinction. I can't, you know, I haven't sat down and written down the exact sides of the Venn diagram to which one is which, but I feel like training feels more transactional mm-hmm. and slightly more once, like it just happens once and then I go away and I am training you and it feels slightly more compliance kind of driven Mm. in some ways. And I think that's probably some hangover from roles I've had or organizations I've worked with or things. Whereas facilitation feels slightly more, uh, it's more of a guide. It's more of a, it's in some ways it's more of a mindset and a skill set that we're actually, we're facilitating some learning rather than I'm training someone. Yeah. It sounds as if in training, we have a clear endpoint where we want the group to go, Mm. whereas in facilitation, it remains open. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just wondering. And I think there's a we... there's a role for both. There's a yeah. role for both. Like if I went and did my first aid training certificate, I would be fine if that person was training me. Like they were like, "This is how you wrap a snake bite," because we're in Australia. This is how you wrap up a you know if someone gets bitten by a snake. This is how you bandage it up. If someone breaks an arm. This is how you bandage it up. Like that's fine. Train me. It's good. Whereas if I'm doing something different, I might want more of a facilitator to take me through that process. Yeah. And I wonder whether we rather appreciate facilitation in a training than training in a facilitated workshop. Yes, I think that's a good point. Because if if a facilitator suddenly starts to train in the context mm. of a workshop, it almost feels like crossing boundaries. Like, who are you to do that? Whereas if a trainer facilitates, depends, yeah. it's a gentle mm. approach to learning. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's a nice distinction. And look, I don't think, I think some people are very purist about this and I don't think I'm very purist about really anything, but maybe British biscuits actually, but that's a different topic. But (laughs) but I'm not very purist about these types of things. So some people are very, I've seen it in certain groups and things like that. People will be like, no, as a facilitator, you can never give an opinion and you can never share any information. You can never, and I'm just like, if your role as a facilitator is to help people to get somewhere, sometimes to help them get somewhere, you know, if you're really doing it for their best benefit, sometimes the best thing to do is be like, hey, have you seen this example? Or have you heard about this before? Or have you read this book? You know, whatever it is yeah. that may be slightly sort of drifting towards the tell or the training or, you know, whatever. Or, hey, let me, this sounds like you would be, this, you know, a, or would it be helpful for you to have a bit of a framework to work on this problem? How yeah. about this one? And they actually, they're like, oh, actually, yes, this really helps. And then they can carry on. So you've still facilitated them, but there was just an element of teaching or learning or yeah, whatever you want to call it in in between. Thank you. Yes. As long as it serves the group and we're there to make it As long as it serves the group and you're not just doing it to make you feel clever because you're like, I haven't said anything for a while, so I should probably say something clever to them. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is not a good thing to do in any any circumstances. No, it's tempting sometimes, but you know, no, best avoid it. Yeah. Awesome. Check that box. I'm always curious because I get 
the question a lot. What's the difference mm. between a facilitator and a trainer and a, and a coach and a mentor and all these kind of things? Mm. And yes, it's very fluid. And yep. I'm curious to hear from my podcast guests who have been, who have had both hats or multiple hats yep. on their head, their perspective. So what have you learned from your time as facilitator to then get into the more design role, designing mm. L&D experiences or even curricula? The first thing I, that comes to mind is how much I hate writing leader guides because I never used to like re using them. So, <laughs> so if I ever have to try, like do a train the trainer or write a leader guide so that someone else can use, I'm just like, oh God, this is so hard. Yes. Yeah, so don't like that. But no, the, the thing I often think about is I think what it just, it does is it speeds up some of the design process because you know, when you've facilitated a lot and you've got you know, all the thousands of hours under your belt and stuff, you just know roughly how long things will take with mm -hmm. certain groups of certain you know, experience or certain size of groups or whatever the context is. You just sort of know the timing and some of the maybe more or less direction that certain groups will need, which helps you then design better learning. And then also the other thing it really helps me do is just think about the what can go wrongs. So what in this situation is when I'm designing this, this program or this piece of content or whatever it is, what is it? Where are people going to get confused? Where is this going to get unstuck? Oh no, actually that's not going to work at all because logistically in the room, that's not going to help or they're going to need this extra bit of equipment, whatever it is. It just helps you imagine the execution part of the design process, which I think is really important because yeah, because otherwise if you're, if you're not designing with the execution in mind, it's, it's a kind of useless design. It fails the sort of usability or feasibility test. Because you know about the group dynamics and the response mm. makes total sense. Mm. And you made me curious about this leader guide. <laughs> yeah. Cause I think it's uh, partly because it's so difficult and I don't know whether this is a personality thing. I don't like to be told what to do. Mm. <laughs> and I guess there are many in the role of leaders, facilitators who feel the same. I got, yeah. so you didn't this like why we run, This is why we run our own businesses, Miriam. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then a leader guide is important for them to know how to go through the training. But then mm. how can you do it in a way that it leaves enough autonomy to the leader to bring their own style and authenticity in and not to put them off totally? Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. It's such a fine balance because what works for one person, some people need absolutely almost a script. I try and stay away from that because I think as soon as you give someone a script, you're kind of setting them up to fail a little bit because that's what they're going to, yeah, exactly. And, and no one wins from that situation. I understand that people need that. And, but I think that's, a, you just need a different conversation to think about what else they need to be comfortable and running that in a different way. A couple of things I've used before, which have been quite useful is video. I use a lot of video in a lot of the things I do. So, if I can get away with actually providing, and I don't do a lot of this, like a lot of the design I'm doing certainly at the moment is more where I'm going to be delivering it or I'm designing it with someone who is going to deliver, they are going to deliver it or we're going to deliver it together. So obviously then the, the context is quite different. 
but where I have delivered things where someone else is going to deliver it or design things that someone else is going to deliver. I use a lot of videos that they can go back to. And the the big thing I always come back to is what are we trying to get out of this? What are we trying to help the other person or the, the learners or you know whatever you want to call them, the audience to get from this? And if we can keep that in mind and think about, right, what story could I tell? What example can I give? Where can I show them the you know, process, the journey, whatever it is that we're doing and bringing your experience. And when I used to run train the trainers, so for big kind of the big kind of corporate programs, I used to run at EY. And when I used to run train the trainers for those, you know, people would be really worried about the content. And I think it was always more important for them to worry, <laughs> not, not worry about the the context or the color that they were bringing because they know the content. They wouldn't be doing their jobs they wouldn't be in the roles or ranks or levels that they were if they didn't know the content. So actually, that's the least important thing. Worry about yeah the story you're going to tell, the example you're going to give, the thing you're going to put up on the screen to be like, hey, here's one I made, and this is the challenges we came across, and this is how we overcame them. Like Think about that, not the slides or the leader guide or whatever. Interesting because, yeah, and it reminds me of the emotions that stick more and the the mm. context or how did you feel during the training so that you can yeah. actually absorb the content and makes me think that what they're then asking for is the facilitation bit right so yeah. how do you create yeah. the container how the safe space how do you how do you reply to questions without putting people off or mm. putting them on the spot yeah yeah, all of those things. That's the art the, to the science kind of piece. Yeah. And I think sometimes people probably think, oh, it sounds really like woo-woo and I'm kind of the least woo-woo person <laughs> in the world. So that's definitely not the case. But it's more the fact that this is actually, this is the way it works. And this is why when I see people who or go back to teams who I've worked with before or people who I facilitated sessions for years ago, who I've lost contact with and find again in other places or whatever, they're like, oh, hey, I always remember that story you told or that example you gave or that turn of phrase that you used for this thing. I don't remember the slide I put up or the, you know, the model or whatever. It's the 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 color that brings it to life and the stuff like that. And that's the art of the facilitation part, I think, is being able to do that whilst also still delivering the message. Yeah. Yeah, and I think to show that you actually care for the people you're training. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and a level of authenticity of the, mm. sorry. No, no, I was going to say, you, you asked, you said about uh, the questions and making sure people feel kind of happy to ask questions and things. This always reminds me of a, a story when I was a very junior facilitator and it was probably my second year of facilitating and we were teaching this course. There was, the way we used to run it, we ran these big four or five day programs re offsite in a hotel. It was, yeah, it was fun, but it was, it was intense. And there was normally four or five trainers, facilitators uh, in the room. And there was this one, one of the participants, and they were probably second year audit grads. So they, yeah, they'd been, they'd done a year or so of, of audit by this stage. So they were, and they were always the hardest group as well. They were always the ones that felt like they knew everything by now because they'd been there a whole year. So they weren't the most so junior. The confidence at the beginning of exactly journey. the confidence. The, yeah, it's that kind of the was it kind of the peak stupidity or whatever they call it on the the learning the kind of Dunning Kruger or whatever it is. Yeah, Peak stupid. Yeah, I think. Anyway, so they, anyway, so someone asked a question and one of the facilitators at the, who was facilitating that session gave the wrong answer, like actually technically incorrect. And there was that horrible moment where the rest of us at the back of the room, there's four of us at the back, just sort of looked at each other like, oh no, we can't let that go because that's, 
it, it's yeah, it's, it's not not correct. Anyway, so one of the other we all just sort of looked at this one guy at the back. We're like, well, you need to deal with this. <laughs> so he sort of stood up and said, oh, actually, just to clarify, in this situation, you do have to do these things. In these situations, you you don't have to do those things. And what was really funny is then the facilitator at the front went, no, that's not true. And, <laughs> and then there was this kind of standoff between the guy at the front, the four of us at the back, and the participants who'd been in a really difficult group for the for the last kind of couple of days that we've been there this is probably halfway through the through the week and this one guy who was just this awful participant he was just like oh do you want us all to leave and you can all just sort this out and we'll come back later or something <laughs> so in like two minutes we completely lost this really difficult group because yeah so sometimes it's not the participant questions you've got to worry about it's actually <laughs> your, your co-facilitators yeah how did you handle that situation then? We did the whole, right, we'll, we'll get it up on the methodology because we had like an internal methodology for our for audit stuff. We're like, right, we'll, we'll double check, we'll get it up on and then we'll we'll confirm later like that particular thing and we'll actually get the piece of methodology up on the screen to kind of walk through or whatever. And it proved that the the kind of the group at the back had been correct and the guy at the front had, had misspoken or whatever. But then later on, we had a debrief, a facilitated debrief at the end of each day. And we did have that conversation. Like we, we can't let that happen. Like, especially with a group like this, who are just taking no prisoners when it comes to us or, any, or anything else. So it was, yeah, that whole thing of, and it did get a little bit heated actually in that debrief at the end of the day, because yeah, the, the guy at the front was like, no, I said the right thing. And yeah, anyway, so yeah, it was important to kind of and then have that conversation and do that kind of circle back at the end to be like, hey, that can't be how we deal with any kind of disagreements or whatever. Yeah, it's like parents disagreeing with each other in front of a, yeah, yeah. Of a young child. <laughs> you just lose, you lose any kind of, yeah, any leverage you had, zero yeah. by the end. Yeah. yeah. And it reminds me of um, a situation that I... I recall and I adopted from times back at uni. I was mm. sitting in this lecture by one of those Harvard professors, amazing mm. dude. So everyone was a little bit excited and want to look smart. And mm -hmm. whenever someone said something that was wrong, he would reply, yes. And have you thought of, and then say yeah, the yeah, exact no, opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm using this strategy now all the time because the yes doesn't mean yes, I agree or yes, this is correct. It's just, yes, I hear you. Thank you for saying Technology. something. Yeah, yeah. And then it it kind of makes everyone lean in. I want to hear more of that. Mm. It sounds like praise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you're open <laughs> to receive this kind of deviation yeah. of your thoughts. Yeah. Brilliant. I was running a session and some of the stuff I do is is more on the non-technical skills now so it's yeah, all sorts of different things but it's probably less of a right or wrong but sometimes there'll be some things I'm like oh I'm not sure how effective that would be as a, as a technique or whatever if someone yeah you know, if we're sharing some things in the room or debriefing on something so I'll always use tell me more about that or okay mm -hmm. yeah tell me tell me more or, or something along those lines which I'm sure I've stole from Michael Bungay Sanya and when I ran a session at the end of last year for some quite junior people, they were kind of vacationers, so interns for a period of time as a, a session I ran for a program. And one of them came up to me at the end and he said, oh, have you, he said, have you done like therapy or something? Or something? I was like, oh, why? He was like, oh, because you kept, you used a couple of times, you used this tell me more phrase rather than telling someone they were wrong or or disagreeing with them. And I thought it sounded like a very kind of therapy phrase. <laughs> 
<laughs> also, I'm glad I feel I, I seem so well balanced that I looks like I've done a lot of therapy and I'm very um interesting yeah it's uh, yeah. these moments where we get caught that we're in the coaching facilitation or training business yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. stop facilitating me yeah yes yeah <laughs> and it's true yeah the tell me more is uh brilliant you mentioned before the um co-designing that mm. um so from the leader guide that now you're more in co-designing the sessions and yeah. What I hear is, and I wonder whether this is correct, that you're <laughs> co-designing it with someone who is internal to the organization. Sometimes, yeah. So I've got one a project I'm working on at the moment. Actually, the other person is also external, but they are a subject matter expert in this particular area. I'm more the learning design expert person. And then the two of us together are creating something that we will both deliver. But I will do the facilitator role and they will do mm. the subject matter expert role. So our design is quite is is really it's fun. It's very clear what we both bring. But then also it's quite easy because we are designing what we will deliver. So we don't really need to document that much in terms of the facilitation element of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just wondering because especially when we think, and we spoke about that in our exploration call, mm. when we are coming in as externals with a specific part of the learning and development context or journey of an organization, mm. to what extent can we actually guarantee that it's It's a fitting piece in the broader puzzle. So how can we know what the context is in which we are coming in and that once mm. we are leaving, there's actually a sustainable impact of what we've done? Yeah, it's two very good questions. So I think with the, with the input part, so I do a lot of, I think over time you just learn some good questions to ask that will shortcut to getting more information quicker. Mm -hmm. So I think some of that, has again just come through practice around asking to see maybe certain documents but the or speak to certain people but the thing i do depending on what the scope of the program it or the piece of work is obviously how big it is or, or whatever i will almost always do some interviews with some leaders some people who are kind of more junior or do some focus groups depending on again the kind of context or size of the of the program and just to find out what's going on how do they learn in real life outside of work what's mm -hmm. their experience of work learning how does that match with their experience in this organization and if it's a specific program we're designing maybe ask for some challenges that they have on that particular type of topic or problem or whatever it is so next week i'm running a session as part of a bigger program or curriculum design I've done with an organization. I've run some of it and some other people run other parts. One of the bits I'm running next week is a presentation skills session. So last week I sent them the participants a video ask with two questions. Number one was their name. That was pretty easy. And the second question was, what do they struggle with on presentations and what types of presentations are they typically giving? So I kind of got pretty quickly from the exact people I will be facilitating Yeah. All the information, like, okay, 80% of the information I needed to make a, a really effective practical session. And what I find brilliant is that you're sending them a video ask. So for those in yeah. the audience who don't know, it's a tool where you can basically ask a question as a video and the recipient yeah. can reply either in text form or with a video. Or with audio, actually, as well. Or with yeah. audio. Yes. yes. So you, yeah. yeah. So you even get 
insights on their preference of communication and their skills mm. level in terms of presentation, whether they feel confident to actually reply on camera. Yes. And no one did. And that will be one of the first things I mentioned. <laughs> so spoiler alert if anyone listens Otherwise, to this. Otherwise, maybe before, they uh, <laughs> have needed to hire you. <laughs> yeah, this is this is true. Yes. So and that's going to be one of my tips is use more video. Yeah, use more video on in your in your daily communications. Yeah. Anyway, but that's that. So yeah, so I think with using some clever tools up front and asking the right questions and immersing yourself as much as you can. And that's something I want to actually get some maybe a little bit braver or bolder on in the immersion part, because I think there's there's bits, of course, we still do, we still miss. Now, it's a little bit harder now. People aren't always in offices and stuff like that, because I'm not going to turn up at someone's house and be like, hello, show me your work day. <laughs> that's that's you know, probably pushing a boundary. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Probably pushing a boundary somewhere. But yeah, I think there's ways you can get that information pretty quickly that gives you enough to get started. And then you kind of find out more as you go. And I think if you build really great relationships with clients, you start to really, you, you start to use their language. And there's a few clients now I've been working with since when I started my business. So nearly four years ago. And so by now I feel fairly embedded. Like I know now other people in the organization. And if I've got a question, sometimes I'll go directly to another department to be like, Hey, I'm doing this thing again with this team. Can you just fill me in on this? Or can do you know what if, if this is working? Or yeah, you know, just stuff like that. And you actually start to use yeah, their internal language and you can refer back to stuff. And it starts to just build that trust of, oh yeah, she gets us because she's been around long enough to know. Now, I think there's also a bit of a danger with that as well. There's an element of complacency potentially that can come in or or like over familiarity, but it's finding that sweet spot about how you kind of manage some of those biases that might happen whilst mm -hmm. also kind of still bringing them the best stuff. And yeah, with a lot of those clients every year, I'm kind of, we're building something new and, and making it better and bigger and whatever else we need to do. It's not just rolling the same thing every time. Beautiful. It's interesting with the lingo, how it, on the one hand, creates trust because, okay, we're mm. the same, we understand each other, but then can come across as very exclusive, mm. especially when they're new team members or someone who yes. doesn't understand. Yeah. 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 But I think you can stay far enough away that you can then see from the new team members perspective and be like, oh, actually, so and so, you weren't here last time. Someone else said, like, you explain what we did last time. Yeah. You can actually really invite those people in and be the person who remembers those things, which I think mm -hmm. sometimes that doesn't happen in the teams themselves. So sometimes actually you get to be the, the memory of the group in some ways. Be like, well, last time you promised this, or this is what happened, or this person wasn't here. Someone needs to fill them in. Did you do that? No, didn't think so. Okay, <laughs> you can do that now. And then the other thing as well is you can still, yeah, you know, the benefit you still have as an external is being able to bring in other perspectives. Obviously, you know, an anonymized and you know, without sharing any secrets or anything. But what's happening in other organizations? What are you seeing out in the world? Because a lot of people just aren't really plugged into a lot of that. Yeah. Which would definitely underline the effectiveness of importance of bringing external trainers in. And mm -hmm. I wonder, especially in large organizations where you most probably won't be the only trainer in the organization. Yeah. So they have multiple other trainers coming in and I guess they have a central L&D department and they have an HR department. And then all these groups learn different ways to communicate or different mm. ways to present in your experience, is there a form or best practice to make sure that there's actually an organizational learning that brings it up? Do you debrief with the L&D department or with maybe the com 
competitor trainers even? Mm. <laughs> my yeah, my um my frenemies. No, I'm joking. <laughs> the yes, I think a lot of the organizations I work with are probably on that the medium, medium large kind of size. So I'm um, particularly here in Australia where this company size is just really quite different to sort of the US or a lot of Europe and things like that as well. But as in tends to go uh, sway a bit smaller. Yes, yeah, so a lot of the ones I'm working with are on the medium to large size. And a lot of them, if they've got learning departments, they're quite limited in terms of the scope. And actually, a lot of them don't have the capacity or sometimes the capability or interest in having those things for facilitation. Mm -hmm. So they are more the coordinators, for want of a better word, of what do we need to do or need to cover? But then they find the best tool for the job in terms of facilitation or facilitators or models or processes or you know, externals, whatever that looks like. And so that's and that's where I kind of fit in quite nicely to some of those things. The others where it's there is more of a so one of my other clients, which is much larger and it's public sector as well. They have uh, an L&D team who do do facilitation, but they just can't do everything because mm -hmm. there's only so many of them and it's a big organization. It's very varied, etc. So with them, I work with their learning team and they're like, Steph, can you do these ones? And then we'll debrief afterwards. And then they're often already doing partnership and things with the departments that I'm working with. So then they mm -hmm. go, great. And I give them the information to make their job better or easier. So when they go back to that team, they can be like, oh, I know with Steph, you covered these things and you had this breakthrough. How do we now take that to the next level in terms of your capability development or your performance plans or yeah, whatever it is? So it's it works. It's that part, real partnership. And that's my kind of preferred way of working is where I'm kind of partnering with someone. It's almost like an, I'm an extension of the team yeah. as, you know, as much as is appropriate or possible. Yeah, so nice this example, because I'm mm. I'm imagining mm. situations, and it happens often with workshops where you mm. create hope for a new possibility. So yeah. there are yeah, new yeah. skills trained. There's vulnerability shown. So you see your colleagues in a new light, and then you close the workshop, and Monday morning you realize that oh. Mm actually doesn't really fit yeah. in yeah how would you have you experienced that and how maybe you have a tip how to avoid it or to approach yeah it? it's so hard and this is something i think about a lot and is driving actually a bit of change i want to make in my own business over this year in particular so a couple of things so i think partly that partnership if you can partner with hr people and culture l d whoever it is that helps because they can help sustain Mm. in some way, shape or form, not maybe completely. And there's obviously still challenges with that, but they can then build it into the rest of the environment or the rest of the ecosystem that that team works in. And often I'll make recommendations, be like, hey, this person seems like they're struggling a bit. You know, are they okay? Like, you know, I don't need any you know, details or information about them or anything, but it might be worth someone checking in. Or I think this person, this leader might really benefit from some coaching. Now, some of those things are just ideas or recommendations or stuff I've noticed in the observations I've had in a workshop. So then sometimes those are actually put into practice or actioned mm. and others are like, oh yeah, we'll keep an eye on that. And you know, those things don't come off or yeah, whatever, that's fine. So I think that's where you can add some value to kind of keep the conversation going. I think there's another piece around the actual making sure, which comes back to your question around the design of the session, is making sure that it's actually based on the real work that they're going to be doing. So can they bring with them a live project, a piece of work, a challenging conversation, a 
plan they're making, whatever it is mm-hmm. that we use as the catalyst and the vehicle for the conversation, the development that we're going to be doing. Otherwise, what's the point? Like if you you can do, and like, yes, there's obviously a value sometimes in doing a more abstract example or something to show a point. But if you're doing something that you need them to be able to do, do it in the real work and in the real world, because yeah, otherwise, I, I don't know. Maybe this is something I am actually a bit more, bit more not more dogmatic, dogmatic on, but, <laughs> but yes. So I think just do, do the real work. Yeah. It reminds me of, God, reminds me of um, early high school years math class mm. where you were mm. learning some sort of equations and then you were given in the exam a, a test to apply it. And actually mm. the application of something theoretical to something concrete yeah. was extremely mm. difficult. And I think today it comes in a different shape and form, but it still remains difficult. Mm -hmm. So then it's your job as a trainer to facilitate this. So why confronting them with the theory if you can help them to solve the problem directly? Absolutely. Which which is why one of the really important things I do before I run a workshop, particularly if it's more of a team session, which I'm doing a little bit less of for this, actually for this exact reason, is I'll always do a one-on-one conversation with every team member. Mm. Now, if it's a whole department, I won't do that. I'll do a sample of people. But if it's a leadership team or a functional team or something, and there's up to, I don't know, 15 of them, I will talk to every single person to find out what's really going on and what are the real kind of topics of conversation Mm. or things they're working on. And then we use those based on what the majority of people say, because that's where you get the impact. Now, one of the things I just will, will say is that Okay. So two things. Number one, I very, very, very rarely do just one workshop or one session with a team for this exact reason, because if they don't practice it, most of the time teams have an accountability problem anyway. So then being accountable for something new (laughs) is even harder. So I find that doing a couple of sessions sometimes just gets a little bit more momentum. And then that I can be that kind of conscience being like, okay, well, last time you said you were going to do this, did you do the thing? I found that during 20, pre 2021, 2020, there was, it was just much quieter. 21, there was a lot of need for change because mm-hmm. people were really stuck and there was a very, very real pain for people. So they made the changes and we actually got more momentum quicker because they were like, Oh, we don't know how to work together in this new way. And then I'd run a session. They'd be like, Huh, we've, okay, we've come up with some ideas and then they would go and implement them. What I found last year, and I'm sort of still seeing now, it's very early 23, but yeah, definitely in 2022, is the problems became, they were still there, but they were much less immediately painful. And it was very clear that the pain of change was going to be more painful than the pain of staying the same. I haven't seen that so clear. Yes. Which means that then the accountability, the momentum got slower. And were teams, they were having the same great conversations, but were they actually making, doing the things that they said they were going to? Were they actually kind of being a little bit braver around doing something different? I don't know. I don't know if they were. Do you think that this has to do with uh, that we have more choice now? So because in in 2020, 2021, we were forced to Mm. stay at home and to deal with the circumstances. And there was fear and there was also this, um, we're in this together. And now mm-hmm. suddenly mm-hmm. we may work from home or we may go back to the office and we have all these options and then it's much more comfortable to avoid the yeah. change. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think so. And I think as well, you can exactly that you can avoid the change. Whereas in, yeah, in 2020, 21, you just couldn't like this every day is causing me headaches because I do not know how to best communicate. We just haven't got that cadence right. And just some really simple things. So, and like the same level of simplicity of change was suddenly very doable and sticky. Like it stuck. People carried on doing them. Whereas then when it's just, when it's because there was such an immediate problem and pain point. Whereas, yeah, when in 22, that was less of the case. It was more like, yeah, this isn't great. We'd love to be able to work together better. It's like, okay, you know, facilitate, facilitate. What do you, what do you reckon? Get them to come up with their own solutions. But then be like, okay, did you do it? Oh, no. Well, you know, I went back to my desk and I got busy and I did my emails. Okay. Well. Which is so you and there's only so much you can do. You can there's only so much you can do as an internal, as sorry, as an external at that point. And I think, you know, yes, I could be there every day and be like, Did you do the thing? Did you do the thing? Did you have the conversation? But like no one's gonna pay you to do that. <laughs> and do I want and to do that? Nobody wants not. you to do that. And you yeah, don't want exactly. To. And it's not it's not my and, it, and it, at that point, you as a facilitator, and this is I think is a really hard thing, especially if you're quite action oriented, is you have to let go of it's not your work. And also to manage or set expectations at the beginning that, yes, we're doing a workshop, but the real work actually starts afterwards. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's how I close almost all my workshops. Yeah. And I just want to emphasize how beautifully I think you build relationships with your clients from what I hear is that you mentioned before the lingo that you use in the workshops in order to connect with them and to build trust. Mm. And by having these one-on-one -on -one interviews beforehand you're collecting the stories you you bring mm. the narrative into the room you make yeah. sure that everyone feels heard because you can use their stories and thereby use yeah. the lingo and then circling it back and with the hr department and linking it with the different departments basically you're breaking mm -hmm. silos uh, yeah. on behalf of them yeah and normally within the team as well and the sense The thing, the the reaction I get the most when I do the, here's what you told me at the beginning, normally at the beginning of the session and be like, okay, we've had our conversations. Here's what you told me. And I normally do like a nice flip chart or something like with the, the themes on or something like that. And the overwhelming sense I get from that is relief because people go, oh, everyone else thinks the same as I do. Oh, we all think they've got the same problem. Oh, okay. I thought it was just me. When I'm like, here's your three themes and there's 10 people in the room. And yeah, just that kind of like, there's almost like this like big collective sigh. People mm. are like, oh, okay. We all do know that there is these couple of problems, but we've got that sense of, we now have acknowledged that without them having to tell each other. Like I kind of, con yeah, I'm the kind of conduit to that in some ways. Yeah. And for me, that's, that's the magic of facilitation to make the implicit explicit. Mm, something yeah, that really was there but nobody they didn't talk about it it was just somewhere in the room and s suddenly it's there and then we can speak about it mm. i yeah. just had a have you seen the, have you seen the stinky oh just that remind me sorry have you seen the stinky fish oh um, yeah, yeah quadrant yeah. Yes. i saw it for the first time the other day and i thought that is brilliant i'm going to use that i took a little screenshot of it maybe i should tell people if they haven't seen it what the four quadrants are let me find my little thing so it's there's a, it's, it's a template the stinky it's fish. The stinky fish. Yes, yes. It's called Discover the Stinky Fish and it's from Fearless Cultures. So I think, is that Amy Edmondson? Yeah. I don't know whether he did oh, it, but he definitely uses okay. it a lot. Yeah. 
Okay, cool. So the first quadrant on the top left-hand side is what are your uncertainties? So you get people to put sticky notes on there and then moving around clockwise. The next one says, what's making you feel afraid or anxious? The next one I loved, which is what are the past issues we can't get over? And I just think that is such a good quadrant to have as a team. Uh, And then the final one, which I also really liked, which is what's everyone thinking and no one is saying. So good. Yeah. And then I can only imagine the difference in reaction, whether you do this on site with real sticky notes, where you're Mm -hmm. basically exposed and where everyone sees what you write versus online. On Miro or something, or mural. Yeah. Yeah. Where you can hide a little bit. Or where you could even do that in advance. Yes. Mm, Asynchronously and then bring it in to have it as a kickoff for a conversation. That's a very good idea. To Mm. basically, uh, you can use the four quadrants in your interviews beforehand. Fill it in and say, okay, this is what we got. Let's unpack it. Here's your your stinky fish. (laughs) It's interesting. It reminds me of a conversation I had just earlier this morning with uh, Jeremy Dean of the Emotional Mm. Culture Deck. And he mentioned that the beauty of unpleasant emotions is, well, the beauty. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bad way to <laughs> it's, a nice, it. it's a nice way of putting it. I liked it. I liked it. The thing about the unpleasant emotions is that as soon as you name them, you take the unpleasantness out of mm, them. You disarm them. Yeah. 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 yeah you disarm them. And, um, yeah. it almost feels uh, similar to what you just described this collective sigh of you named it and now it's it's not as heavy anymore. Maybe also because mm. it's not only on one pair of shoulders that someone yeah. has to carry it, but it's distributed. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes think that's the most powerful part of a, of a session sometimes, just people realizing that everyone feels the same. Yeah, there's some stuff that's not working. And I feel like sometimes even just doing that, people go think, oh, it's actually not that bad. Like now I know that everyone feels the same. It doesn't feel as bad anymore. Maybe that's why no one changes. They're like, oh, okay, I can live with it now because because we all think it's crap. So. Yeah, so true. One thing that came to my mind before when we spoke about you doing, you and trainers in general, doing the hard work of translating the theory into practice so that they have it easier. Thinking of... You have a podcast where you discuss mm-hmm. books, so you're a vivid mm-hmm. reader. And um, um, yeah. and I heard from someone, uh, she said, oh, Steph Clark, she's my absolute favorite person on LinkedIn. Oh. <laughs> I will send that person uh, some money and some chocolates. <laughs> and so you're doing the hard work of going through all the theory and reading all these books. Mm-hmm. And I think something that many of us struggle with is reading these books and then actually implementing them and putting Mm -hmm. them to practice. How do you do that? Well, I don't implement everything. And I think this is the, this is the difference between distilling and implementing Well, reading and then distilling and then implementing. Like I love distilling stuff. I kind of always have, I love, I think I'm, I've always been drawn to these kind of like teacher roles. I think some of it's because I like to be in charge and like to be in the front of a room. <laughs> there's probably, there's some complex emotions in there as well. <laughs> but yeah, I've always been drawn to that kind of like, right, take something and then like break it down, make it fun and share it. And that kind of, that process to me is just incredibly appealing and something I almost can't get away from. Like whatever I do, like that, it always comes up again in some way, shape or form. 
so then the, the podcast was exactly that. And it was to try and catalog, first of all, because I was doing all this reading and people would ask me for recommendations. They'd be like, oh, have you read this? Is it good? What's this one about? And eventually, after you've read you know, quite a few books, especially in that similar genre or subgenre, you start, you know, they, they get mixed up. And you're like, oh, was that example from that book or was it from that book? So rather than start a blog or something easy, I thought I would <laughs> start a podcast. And so, so yeah, and I find that really useful as a way of distilling. And I don't, but I don't implement everything. There's some books I absolutely have, and there's a few books that I don't implement immediately. But then a year, 18 months, three years later, I'll think, oh, actually, I've now got this problem, but I now know where to go for some ideas on a solution. And I think that's the most useful thing about it is it's almost just like a, a bank of a resource of a guide or whatever to come back to at other points or to share with others, you know, and often in the work I do with teams and organizations, there's, there's loads of relevant stuff in the books. And I almost always after a workshop and normally during a workshop will recommend some books to people, yeah. you know, based on the challenge that they've got. It reminds me back to the overconfidence and the Dunning-Kruger where <laughs> if, if it's, the only book you read, I'm exaggerating, if the only book you read, you think, oh, that's the holy grail. I need to implement yeah. every single piece of it. And now that you have this abundance of pieces and different perspectives, because books mm. might also contradict each other. Exactly. And, yeah. And you have the experience in the field. So you know exactly, okay, in this situation, I might apply that. In this situation, mm. I'm would rather apply something else. Yeah. Mm. And even I was talking to Adam Ashton, who has a podcast called What You Will Learn. And they talk, they do book, him and another Adam do book, they talk about books as well. And they read more than I do. And we were talking about the fact that the books you read early on in your kind of reading, which you thought were great. If actually, if you went back to now 200 books later, you'd be like, actually, this is terrible. <laughs> or this is average, or this doesn't actually get a point across in a very way or actually this is yeah whatever but it's maybe not as good as you thought it was when you had a more limited range or palette for want of a better word of of reading or of books what makes a good book a good popular <sighs> we're speaking about popular science books right self-help yeah 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 so in that kind of yeah management non-fiction i think for me the the things i keep coming back to is that i always almost always find the best books are the ones written by journalists because they pull from so many different sources and they are experts in telling a story, threading different things together and going and finding interesting, unique sources of inspiration, but stories and examples that aren't just the ones that we've read in every other book about that topic. This makes so much sense. Mm. So a book that, yeah, book that brings different ideas and isn't just recycling something that is, is new. So the, the other books that can be really good are books written by primary researchers. So the ones who have done the work on the, you know, the piece of the research or the piece of theory or whatever it is as well, preferably if they have also applied it in, in some way. But uh, those ones are often quite good as well because it is unique and it is, it is something new. Yeah. Thank you. And with all these resources and all this mm -hmm. experience, what would you consider your still number one facilitation challenge if you're in the room? Ooh, good question. I think more and more it's how it's making the, the space feel 
safe and accessible to different people. And I think the more we learn and the more I learn about you know, things around bias, around neurodivergence, around you know, different privilege, kind of you know, people's experiences and with privilege and power and things like that as well. Like the more you learn about that stuff, the more the black hole opens up of, oh God, like how do I create these spaces that tick all of these different boxes and are as accessible and safe and blah, blah, blah as, as everything else as it needs to be in order to get some kind of outcome. And then should this outcome even be the outcome if we've got all these other problems? Yeah. <laughs> so I think um, overthinking clearly is, is the uh, is the challenge. But no, I think it is, it is that. And I think that will, in some ways, I think that should always continue to be the challenge because mm-hmm. yes, there's new tools to learn and new techniques to try and new pieces of technology and things you can use. And I think that's that's good. And that's something I like to, I really try and stay on top of as well around different techniques and making things feel fresh and different and not not just you know, variations on something we've done before. But ultimately, in the end of the day, yeah, can people come and contribute and feel engaged and feel that they can be part of the group? Like that's, that is the most important role of the facilitator and is something we should all be really constantly trying to build our skills on and be aware of. Mm, because every group also is different. Because what feels safe and how we create mm. safety and inclusion yeah. for one group doesn't necessarily stick with the other one. Yeah. And even just all this, you know, all of these things that you hear, you know, the language you use to address the whole group mm. is that, hey, guys, because, yeah. And again, I've really tried to remove that from my vocabulary over the last few years. And I'm doing pretty well. Like it slips in every so often. I'm like, oh, I get it, got me again. But, you know, just stuff like that, like using gendered language, you know, all of these things, which now we, yeah, are just learning more on and, and it should be because that's something that, you know, makes a difference. Absolutely. And then I think the struggle is, at least for me, that I want it not to compromise on my authenticity. So if I watch my words too much, and I'm usually I could improve my way of speaking, so I did watch my words more, but really (laughs) often I just speak and then I'm like, oops, sorry, didn't mean to... But on the other side, it's, it also needs practice by, mm. yeah, hi guys. I stopped doing yeah. that after reading that this research where the, in school, in high school, they realized that the teacher asked, Hey, do you have questions? Hey guys, do you have questions? And girls wouldn't mm. raise their yeah. hand. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they weren't being addressed. Yeah. Yes. And since then we're like, okay, clearly this is wrong. And for non mother tongue English speaker. Of course, it's yeah. more difficult because there's so many nuances that I wasn't even aware yeah. of. Yeah. But then how to get there to first kind of make it second nature and it will require some training and will sound mm. bulky. And this could endanger the safe space because I'm not authentic and I'm not myself. Yeah. 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 How do you or do? if you're constantly, or if you're in the room constantly apologizing for using the r- wrong word, like it then it, that becomes a distraction. So again, like this, it's such a fine balance, but I think this is also, it's almost those fine motor skills we are then building and refining rather than the kind of the big muscles of, you know, your legs or your, <laughs> your arms and things. This is kind of your, your dexterity, isn't it? As a facilitator. Yeah. Which makes me actually think that maybe the most important is not using the right language, but setting the right ground rules or way of talking in this particular space so mm. usually when i facilitate in german so i'm my mother mm. tongue is german and mm-hmm. in german now they they have different genders but they yes. 
they would use a very specific language now to address everyone in every specific gender. And when oh, okay, I step okay. into the space, I tell them, okay, I know German is my mother tongue. I'm supposed to know that, but mm. I cannot. So please don't feel offended. I would just yeah. try to switch gender and to use different yeah, examples yeah, yeah. at different. And then usually it's okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so maybe ground rules are more important. Yeah, or set it. It's kind of setting that intent and that expectation, isn't it? Of like, this is, yeah, this is, this is how I'm showing up and this is what I'll, yeah, some things I'll be doing and things. I'm not a big fan of ground rules for a group and except in very specific kind of situations. But yeah, that I think for yourself, that's useful. What do you mean by that? If I may ask. There's actually, yeah, there was an interesting, there was a thread actually, there was a thread on LinkedIn the other day. I think Viren actually weighed in, our mutual friend Viren weighed in on this as well. I just think for a group, you know, I've, and I've, I've done it myself because I was, you know, one of the first things we would get taught when we were doing our training in, you know, 2009 and things like that was, right, the first thing you do is tell the group to do this and not do that and not do this and not do that. And I just, I, yeah, you know, as I kind of then found my own facilitation style, I was like, and similar to you, I'm not a big fan of rules anyway. And eventually I was just like, do we need this? Like we're all adults. And is that really setting us up on, you know, again, that kind of this point of, is that really setting everyone up for the right relationship, first of all, between facilitator and group and group to group as well, that peer relationship. And because it just, in, it just embeds this, this weird power dynamic that there already is, mm. which there sh- couldn't, you know, shouldn't be in, in many ways. And I don't know, it just feels kind of gross to be like, you group of adults, I think you're going to do the wrong thing. So I'm going to tell you what not to do. And I don't like that. (laughs) Now, there are situations where if I'm working with a team and there is some tension and some friction, I will suggest, and it's more of a, you know, we want today to be a really constructive conversation. So I'd invite you to think about what you're bringing into the space, maybe what you're leaving behind and actually have that as a group discussion rather than, so it's very, they are sort of setting the intention for how we'll run the session, how we'll disagree or whatever it is, rather than me being like, right, we'll do these things. We won't do those things. Here's my list that I have turned up with. And this is what I, I want you to do or want you not to do. Good point. Thank you. It's funny. Mm. I used to run sessions without ground rules because I don't like rules. And I'm like, okay, I think it's also related to the design. How can you design activities mm. in a way that it will be self-enforcing? Yeah. So that there is no other way than obey- playing by the rules because this is 100%, yeah. by design. Um, yeah. And I started now from time to time to actually introducing them because I realized, okay, maybe they're expecting them or especially if they're different cultures, different perspectives, expectations in the room. But it always breaks yeah. the dynamic. Yeah. yeah. And they agree and really, yeah. brings the power dynamic. But let me tell you. Mm. Yeah. 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 And to then flip from that to facilitation, it's a bit like this like whiplash between for the participants as well. Like, well, are you in charge of us? Like, are you with us? Like, I don't, I don't really, I don't really understand. But I love your point there around designing a session and particularly that first kind of 20 minutes or so designing a session so that those things become self kind of governing in some way. So you're like, they're doing work in small groups, in which case it's going to be harder for someone to be 
doing the wrong thing because they've got these two or three or four other people that they will be very immediately letting down or yeah. it'll be very obvious. So there's yeah. just that kind of you you rely on a bit of human behavior as well. Or um or just again being like, hey, if you have something that comes up, if you need to send an email, can I just uh, you know ask if you sort of step outside to grab that? No, 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 you know, no problems or anything like that. We just rather not yeah have a different dynamic in the room where we aren't yeah, it's just not distracting. Yeah. Yeah, I heard that um recently. <laughs> When the facilitator said, please, if you need to use your phone, do it outside because using phones is contagious. And it's so true. I haven't, I haven't yeah, realized yeah. before he said it. One, one person takes out their phone and then suddenly everyone takes out their phone. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's where you can add, like for me, like one of the most and like real kind of value, I suppose, of mine as well is where you can just use humor, even in like the most sort of sometimes the most serious of settings or the most driest of topics. The more you can bring some humor in, like the better. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. What makes a workshop fail? Well, when the facilitators disagree with each other across the room, that's often a <laughs> <laughs> full circle to the beginning. Yeah, we've gone full circle. Yeah, that's a bit of a fail. I think when it's a good question, when does the workshop fail? I think uh, what I've seen before and what I hear of from others as well, you know, in organizations I work with who talk about things that they've had before internally and externally or in other organizations is when the facilitator or trainer turns up with either a stock standard, this is what I'm running and you will just sit here while I run it kind of thing. <laughs> and there's kind of no deviation from the plan. Like that's a big challenge. Uh, and that's where I think they fail because everyone checks out pretty quickly in that situation. So I think that's when they fail, when it's just very much it's the it's driven by an agenda or a facilitator or the you know, trainer or whatever. It's not really a facilitator really at that point, is it? Trainer or whoever they are. And when it lacks, then therefore that context. Mm. And I think when it's not been set up in a way, and again, these things can be micro things that happen really early on or beforehand or whatever, when it's just not set up in a way where people can be involved. And I think that's a real shame and a real missed opportunity as well. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, believing that there's that one person has a monopoly on knowledge. Mm. And build a sage on a stage, whatever they call it. Yeah, because I think it's a missed opportunity if we don't invite those to contribute who are there. It's also in a training. Mm. There's mm. so much potential in every group. And I think also it's an opportunity for them to show each other what else they know. Because there's so much knowledge you don't necessarily apply in your daily job and your job description and can still be yeah. useful. Absolutely. I use that that theory or that sort of, I suppose, principle a lot. And even sessions where it is slightly more you know, edging towards training. Mm. Most of the time I'll turn up with some like some ideas or some stuff. Like I very, very, very rarely use slides. Like I probably use slides twice a year for stuff. And mostly that's when I've got a Christmas very big group and I need to put it. Yeah. And I need to put, yeah, it's a very big group and there's instructions I need to put up on a screen, like just because it's easier. Like that's, that's pretty much the only time I use slides. And so I'll turn up with something in mind and then really use the group to guide. And the first thing I'll do is like, right, what do you want to get out of today's session? Get a list of all of their kind of things that they want to cover. And this is particularly where it's, like I said, more, slightly more training than facilitation or group dynamics or anything like that. What do you want to cover today? Good. Okay. We've got the list. All right. Well, we'll use that as our agenda, basically. And mm -hmm. then ask them to be like, okay, split into groups, take these challenges, fix them. And then when they debrief or when we, when they present back or debrief, or we do some you know, activities around that, then I fill in the gaps around what they, what else they might not know or may have missed or may not have seen before. 
yeah, and they all go away having taught themselves. And it sticks much better, right? Absolutely. They will remember, but I heard I heard that apparently we remember better what has been said by our peers whom we trust already than by someone external. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, um, and then you already triggered their curiosity. They already built mm. something themselves and then they're curious to hear more what they don't yeah. know yet. Yeah. And then you can layer it and you'd be like, oh, and actually in this example, or here's actually in another organization, I saw this and they're like, oh, wow, that's a nice build on that. And that's where you kind of get to color in the, yeah. you know, the missing bits and stuff. Yeah, which makes your job ways easier, which makes it more easy and entertaining for them and creates yeah. just a better yes and exactly. You kind of yeah, you exactly you end up running like almost like a little mini unconference in, you know, in 90 minutes or two hours or whatever it is. And I was talking to a facilitator friend, must have been last year when I was running something like that. And then they knew I had a workshop and they said, Oh, are you have you got your content? I was like, oh, I'm not really going on any content today. I'm gonna see what they want to cover. <laughs> and they were like, Oh, I no, <laughs> like, <laughs> like I could not do that. I was like, look, it's a topic look I know. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, look, it's a topic I know more than enough about. It's yeah, it was like presentation skills or something along those sort of lines, or feedback or something like that. I was like, yeah, it's fine. And and I don't think that comes from a, an overconfidence or a cockiness, which I think some people may may misinterpret that. And it's like, no, it's this comfort of knowing that the information, the most of the information you need is in the room. And I know enough about the topic to be able to add the rest or to say, actually, I don't know about that. I'll send you something afterwards, a podcast or video or an article or something. And then it wouldn't have helped to prepare anyway, because it's nothing that no, would exactly. have prepared in the first place. No, exactly. Thank you. Thank you. This was a very rich conversation. Yeah. It's, it's the pure, it's a very kind of generalist conversation, isn't it? Which is um, very much my style. It's like, let's go all over the place and talk about all these different little pockets of facilitation and the, the, the art and science of facilitation that I haven't thought about for a while. But you, you know, stuff you forget that you do for a reason is important yeah. to, to think about sometimes. So thank you. Thank you. For facilitating. And yes, all over the place, but without staying only at the surface. Mm, yeah. Well, that was your questions and curiosity. So thank you. Thank you for sharing. Anything you wanted to share that we haven't touched upon yet before we close? Well, we didn't get into biscuits, but that's okay. Maybe that's another episode. So the best, the best biscuits you can have in a, a conference room. That's and <laughs> terrible food we've had in, uh, <laughs> we've had at conferences. That'd be a whole episode. You can get like different facilitators to share there and just play it as the, the like the vine or the windpipe things. So yeah. Yeah. It could be a big failure. What makes a workshop fail? Yeah wrong food terrible catering and that's why yeah, i love yeah. my online workshops everyone brings their own food exactly is that you can if it yeah exactly you've only got one person to blame if your online session has terrible catering <laughs> <laughs> exactly no thank you that's been a really good way of exercising my brain first thing on a friday so thank you wonderful thank you Thank you for staying tuned and for listening to the show. I know how busy you are and I appreciate that you're sharing your two most valuable resources with me and my guest, your time and your attention. If you're looking for more conversation with other facilitators and for a community of practice, why don't you join Never Done Before, the community that I have built and many of my podcast guests are already members. Visit neverdonebefore.org and I wish to see you there.